From the opening pages of God's word to the very end of God's word, Satan is presented to us as real and living being of ultimate evil, who is an enemy of God and subsequently an enemy of the people of God. God's word portrays Satan like a spiritual stalker looking for just the right moment to come in and destroy anyone he can in that moment of weakness when he can find. As we look at the world around us with any level of honesty, we see he's having any number of victories. I mean, the world is just filled with evil. Life is hard. People are being destroyed. Families are being ruined. Uh, I mean, there, there's just there is an abundance of evidence in the world about the reality of Satan and the victories he has in our day. And what we have to realize is what Satan is doing out there, he would love to do in here. Satan would love nothing more than to destroy every marriage in this church. He would love nothing more than to lead all of our children astray. Uh, He would love nothing more than to bring some into bondage, whether it's bondage to sin or drugs or alcohol or, or some other thing. And what's even worse, if statistics hold true, Satan will succeed in some of these areas here among us, among our people. Now, these are sobering thoughts. And they ought to be, but they don't have to be discouraging thoughts. They don't have to be fearful thoughts because God's word teaches us we can overcome Satan and his attacks. That's what we're going to talk about today. So open your Bible to Revelation 12, page 955, if you have a pew Bible. And you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. And I'll read the whole chapter. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven crowns and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son. A male who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels warring against the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they did not prevail. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, 
Because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing he has only a short time. And when the devil saw he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time away from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent hurled water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept up with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon hurled out of its mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. The title of the message is the same as last week, The War of the Ages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and glorious, wonderful and worthy. Lord, we bow before you today and we are in awe of who you are and of what you've done. Father, we rejoice today to know we have your word to guide us. Lord, how confusing, terrifying this world would be as we looked at it and saw the abounding evil around us. How terrifying that would be if we didn't know who wins in the end. If we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know how to make sense of it through the light of your word. Thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus, the blood that was shed so we might have victory and we might overcome the evil one. Help us all to understand that any ability to overcome the enemy, Father, it's not going to come by our strength and our abilities. It'll come because we've been washed in the blood. Because of what Jesus has done, we are free. We are free indeed. Guide us all to live in light of the freedom Christ has given us. Help us, Father, in our battles with the enemy. I, I don't know what's going on in anyone's life today, but you do, and I know... Lord, that in this crowd there are some who are struggling, some who are hurting, some who the devil is fighting and they are, and they seem to be losing, they feel like they're losing. God, give them strength today. Let your spirit encourage them and fill them and guide them in their life. Lead them to passage in your word that would encourage and help them to know what to do and how to fight against the enemy. As we look at this passage today, open our minds and give us ears to hear what your spirit is going to say to us. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you won't say. Use this time to bring glory to your name. Use this time to strengthen your church. Use this time to change us and make us ever more like Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. As we said last week, this passage introduces us to the, the war of the ages, the war that has been raging since our first parents were in the, the garden and when the devil rebelled against God and became his arch enemy. Now, if you remember from last week, one of the things we said about this passage is that the, one of the main ideas it teaches us is that while the spiritual battle is real and, and often it, it comes to earth and, and takes the form where people are a part of it, we as people are not the focus of the war. Satan is ultimately the enemy of God and everything he does in this war is in a way to attack God. So Satan's attacks on man flow from his rebellion against God. We are a part of the war, but we're not the central part of the war. Ultimately, the attacks against us are attacks against us because we keep the commandment of God. We hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation 12 gives us three truths we need to know about Satan's attacks so that we can overcome them and not be, not be defeated. First is that Satan, we saw Satan was in constant rebellion 
against God. Secondly, Satan seeks to thwart God's plans. And today we look at the final truth from this passage. Satan attacks God's people. Now, if you've read through Revelation 12 any time before at all, I'm sure verse 17 is a verse that stands out to you. The dragon was enraged and he went off to make war with the, the children of the woman who kept the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, that would be us. We're here today. We've devoted ourselves to Christ. We are servants of the Most High God, born again children of God. Therefore, we are a focus of His attacks against God. We also would probably say verse 12 would stand out for this reason. The heavens should rejoice. Why should they rejoice? Because the devil has come to earth. He's not in the heavens anymore. So those that are in the heavens are free. They rejoice. But those of us who are on the earth, woe! Because the devil has come down with great wrath, knowing he has but a short time. He knows he loses. He knows time is short. He knows God is the ultimate victor. He is extremely angry. And so it's, it pictures him almost in a frenzied wrath, doing all he can to bring all the destruction to this world and to people that he can possibly do. He knows he loses the ultimate battle. The war, but he's going to win as many smaller skirmishes along the way as he can. Now, one of the things that stands out in both of these is that the attacks are against the people of God. His great wrath is on those who dwell on the earth. He attacks those who hold to the commandment of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan is actively working against us. Actively working against all humanity in in some ways, but actively working against those who have devoted their lives to serving Jesus Christ. Now, there are many ways he does this, but this passage specifically gives us two. Deception. Verse 9, it says, Satan deceives the whole world. That Satan is a liar and the father of lies, Jesus says. He is a, a deceiver who seeks to deceive the whole world and lead them away. Now, one of my favorite, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but one of the greater examples of Satan's deception and how he uses people to thwart God's plans in his deception is in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 9, there's a story about Israel. They've they've had some victories. Things are going well for them. And a group of people ride up to them. And they say, hey, we're from really far off. We've heard that your God is going to win all of this. We want to be your allies. Joshua, at first, he's really hesitant because he said, I don't know. How do we know you're not really from around here? Right? Because God had commanded them they weren't to make any treaties with the people of the land. They were to destroy them, to burn their altars, and not to intermarry or do anything with them. So Joshua said, I don't know. You, you might be from here and you're trying to trick us. And the guy said, oh, no, no, look at our clothes. And their clothes were really ratty. He said, these were like brand new. I mean, we just got them off the rack. We got on our horses and we came and look how worn they are. That's how far away we're from. And, and, and look at these wineskins. They're all cracked and they're broken. These were brand new when we took it out. And, and look at this bread. It's moldy and the meat, it's bad. All of this was fresh when we came out. And the Bible specifically tells us 
Joshua and the people, they looked at their stuff and they did not inquire of God before they made the treaty with him. But lo and behold, these people were Gibeonites and they were indeed people of the land. And a Gibeonite then is someone who encourages another to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to natural senses while discouraging them from seeking God or his word for guidance. Let me say that again. A Gibeonite is someone who encourages another to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to natural senses while discouraging them from seeking God or his word from guidance. Now, deception is a key aspect of Gibeonite influence. And I tell you this because Gibeonites still exist in our day. Now, they're not actually from Gibeon. But the spirit of the Gibeonite, it's all throughout our culture. Who encourages young people to get drunk, to do drugs, to sleep around, to send naked selfies, or rebel against their parents? Because that's what kids do. Well, a Gibeonite does. Who encourages husbands or wives to have an affair because life is short? Well, a Gibeonite does. Who encourages people, particularly who encourages disciples of Jesus to be open to other religions and other forms of non-Christ-centered spirituality because you, you can't really believe one way is the only way. Well, of course, a Gibeonite does. Who encourages a disciple of Jesus to live for their best life now? Well, well, a Gibeonite does. Who legitimizes pride and selfishness as virtues instead of vices? Because you've got to look out for number one. Well, of course, a Gibeonite does. Who seeks to convince parents kids are going to be kids? As a way to justify teenage rebellion and immorality. Well, of course, a Gibeonite does. Who seeks to justify sin by saying love is love? Are you just born that way? Well, a Gibeonite does. Who seeks to tell people it's just a clump of cells? And it's something that's just a medical procedure to, to wipe it away. But, but we'll also say an eagle's egg is a baby eagle that must be protected. Well, a Gibeonite does. Who tells a disciple of Jesus they don't have to deny themselves, take up their crosses in order to follow Jesus? They should just do what they feel, follow their heart. Well, a Gibeonite does. Who tells a disciple of Jesus they can be Christians without the church, that they don't need the church? A Gibeonite does. Who, who discourages disciples of Jesus from evangelizing because they're good people? I'm sure they're going to heaven. Well, Gibeonites do. I, I could go on all day, but you get the idea. Gibeonites abound in our culture. But here's the big question. Who is behind the Gibeonite? 
Make no mistake. Satan and his deception is behind the Gibeonite each and every time. Satan attacks God's people by deceiving God's people and leading them away from God's will and God's want and God's way. Satan also attacks God's people through accusation and condemnation. Verse 10, he is called the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. One of the ways Satan attacks God's people is through accusation and condemnation. Now, Satan doesn't just accuse us to God. He also accuses us to us. This is one of the greater ways he can work in our lives. Because Satan, again, is a deceiver and a master counterfeiter. And he knows how to make something that's from him seem like it might be something from God instead. That's why it talks about in the Bible, his teachers can appear as preachers of righteousness. And he can appear as an angel of light. So what he can do is, he can take condemnation and he can make it seem like conviction. Now we all know the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit uses the Word of God to bring conviction into our lives, to bring us to salvation, to to sanctify us, to lead us when we start to go astray, to, to help us in our life. And so what Satan will do is he will take the reality of God's conviction and he will switch it with condemnation and we will feel condemned. But we will think it's God doing it and not him. So the question is, how do we know the difference? I mean, if condemnation is from the devil and conviction is from God and and they do at times parallel one another in some things, how can we know the difference? Well, let me give you some ideas. One, condemnation often comes in the form of vain regrets. Here's what a vain regret is. Have you ever gone through your day, the day was going swell, and suddenly you remember something you did years ago. Right? Not, not something silly like you misspoke in a class or embarrassed yourself, but a sinful thing. Sin from your past. And and all of a sudden, the day's ruined because all you can think about is, dang, I cannot believe I did that. Wow. I mean, you're just overwhelmed with condemning thoughts. Now, they don't go anywhere. They're just this setting on you. You're terrible. You're miserable. Look at what you did. Well, can you do anything about something that you did 20 years ago? Can you undo that sin? Of course not. You can't go back and and not do it. There are no do-overs in life. It's a vain regret. God doesn't deal in vain regrets. And I'll talk about this in a second. but, But God deals in specific ways. Vain regrets, misery and condemnation over something I can't fix and I can't go back for is not from God. That is a vain regret from Satan seeking to to beat us down and hold us down. Another thing, condemnation is often a, a very vague sense of inadequacy or worthlessness. One way to recognize satanic accusation and condemnation is often it's very it's little more than a vague sense of inadequacy. You're no good. 
You're worthless. God could never use you. But there's nothing specific. I can remember, I have days, and you may not do this, but I have times where I just, maybe I wake up in the day. And I just wake up and, and my first thought is how badly I kind of suck at life. I mean, I'm just no good. I'm worthless. Where, where does that come from? I mean, and there's not even a specific thing. It's not like you're worthless because you did that. That, that would be different. That's still probably not from God saying you're worthless. But at least it would be specific. But it's like there's nothing. There's no reason I can point to and say because of this. It's just this vague sense of worthlessness and inadequacy. It's this condemnation that just makes you feel put down and beat down and worthless and inadequate. But it goes nowhere. It points to nothing. Where does that come from? Not God. Not ever God. That vague sense of inadequacy and worthlessness is always from Satan. Conviction is always specific. And always leads to change. Conviction is always specific. And always leads to change. God deals with us about very specific actions, attitudes, reactions, priorities, values, or relationships that need to be changed. He not only deals with us about the specific actions or the specific issue. He also shows us how to change it. You're doing this, you should repent of it. You're not doing this, you need to start. Right? I remember years ago, I was reading through my Bible, it was in January. In fact, I think it was 2019 or early or 2020. I was reading in my Bible doing a devotion on version, And it talked about that passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, if you remember someone has ought against you, you should go to them and apologize. And instantly there was a, a person came into my mind. Someone I knew had ought against me. I, I didn't think I, I didn't think I'd done anything, but anyway, I knew they did. And I knew it was long standing. It, it was years, years, years ago. But I knew they had it. And I felt like God was saying, Go apologize. Right? Now, here's where this is not a vain regret. One, it was specific, and I could do something about it, right? It wasn't just you hurt somebody's feelings, but you hurt this person's feelings. And not just you hurt their feelings, now go to them and apologize. Well, that was conviction from the Lord. That wasn't condemnation. The, the devil wasn't leading me to go to someone that the preacher had offended and try to remove a stumbling block that was keeping them from Christ. That was God's conviction. God deals with us in very specific ways. He shows us specific issues we need to deal with and shows us the specific ways we're to deal with it. It's never vague. It's never general. It's always specific. Condemnation pushes us away from God. When we feel condemned, we feel unworthy, unlovable, unacceptable, and unforgivable. We don't go to God. But you ever, and maybe you, you haven't, but I've had times where I sinned. I mean, I, not this wasn't a vague sense of, this was something I had specifically done. And there was this sense of 
Just quit reading your Bible. What's the point? Don't bother praying. I mean, why would you pray? You're going to go to church. I mean, those people are going to find out what you've done, and they're not going to... Where did... What, what is that doing? Well, if I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, I don't go to church, my relationship with God certainly isn't going to thrive, is it? So who's pushing me away from God? Who's pushing me not to read my Bible, not to pray, not to gather with God's people and worship God and listen to His Word? Certainly not God. It's the enemy. Condemnation pushes us away. Always. God won't accept you. God doesn't want you. Just go off over there. And we can be sure that's never from God because conviction always brings us closer to God. Conviction always brings us to God. Maybe to repent so we can restore our relationship with Him. Maybe to obey Him in something He says to do so it will strengthen our relationship with Him. Maybe to fix something in our life so we can become more like Jesus. But whatever it is, When we follow conviction, it always pushes us closer to God. We love Him more. We understand His grace more. We are more like Jesus. We are more devoted to Him. Conviction always brings us closer to God. Condemnation always pushes us away from God. So if what we feel is drawing us to God, that's conviction. If what we feel is pushing us away from God, that's condemnation. We submit to conviction and we reject condemnation. Why do we reject condemnation? We reject condemnation because of what God's word says. Who will bring charges against God's elect? Right? Charges would be who condemns. So this is huge. If you wrestle with condemnation as I do, this verse is huge. Who condemns a born again disciple of Jesus? Does God? Well, no. God's the one who justifies. Well, is it Jesus? Well, no. Jesus is the one who died for our justification, who rose again, who's at the Father's right hand and is actively interceding for us. So if, if God the Father is not condemning us and God the Son is not condemning us, then we can be sure God the Spirit is not condemning us. So when thoughts of condemnation weigh upon us, we can say this is the devil and it's a lie. And we can reject it. These are just some of the ways Satan attacks us as believers. Two of the ways it mentions here. Or the only two ways it mentions in this passage. If we aren't careful, we could let... These things overwhelm us. Right? Because deception. <laughs> if First John is accurate and the whole world's under the sway of the evil one, that means there's far more out there trying to deceive me than there is trying to feed my mind truth, isn't there? And if, I mean, condemnation accusation, I mean, I don't know about you. Again, I, I don't know about you. I have stuff in my life. I know preachers and it's like I was saved when I was five and I lived for Jesus always. And once I really got mad and I slammed my hand down on the pulpit and said, gosh darn it. And, and I, I really felt bad for that. And I would think I was the greatest thing walking if that was my testimony about service to Jesus. That, but it's not. I didn't live for Jesus for a long time. 
And when I got saved, I blew it over and over again. Oh, my goodness. Horrifying things to me in my past. So accusation and condemnation, vain regrets. It's a battle. They're there. So how do we, what do we do about it? Because that can be overwhelming. If, if virtually everything out there is trying to deceive us, and the devil's working with what's in here, what we've already done to, to condemn us, how do we overcome that? How do we keep from letting that defeat us? Well, look at verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Two ways, two weapons, we overcome the enemy. First is the blood of the Lamb. Everything always starts with Jesus. Everything starts with who He is and what He's done. The blood of the Lamb, of course, refers to His death on the cross in our place. Revelation 1.5, John has described Jesus as the one who freed us from our sins through His blood. Of course, the New Testament frequently mentions salvation from punishment of sin because of the death and the resurrection and the blood of Jesus. The only way we will ever have victory, the first way that needs to be there before we will ever have victory, is there needs to be salvation through the blood of Jesus. This is where it all has to begin. Now remember, Satan attacks and accuses and condemns us. What, what, is, what is one of the purposes of accusation and condemnation? One of them is to make us doubt our salvation, right? Does that condemnation ever come upon you and you think, I, how, if I did all that, could I genuinely be a Christian? Could I genuinely be born again? Well, how, do we, how do we fight the accusation? And the condemnation. Well, we don't fight it by denying it. We really did do those things. I mean, by and large, the things he's accusing us of are things we actually did. So we don't deny, yeah, I've been worthless in my life. I've done those things. And it's not by saying we've done more good things than bad things. And the reality is we don't say that because we did do those things. And that would be a lie. And we know we're not saved by doing good things and not doing bad things. Right? We, we counteract the accusations of the enemy. Not by denial. Not by affirming how good we have been since then. We overcome the accusations by restating over and over and over again that the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed on our behalf. We rest in the fact that we are saved through faith in Jesus. And God has made us righteous because of that. When we are accused by Satan for our sins, we simply acknowledge, yes, shamefully, I did those very things. However, because of the blood of Jesus, those things do not matter. I am free, forever free, 
from condemnation of those things because of what Jesus has done. We remind Him and ourselves of verses like, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings according to the riches of His grace. And I don't have time to look at these verses in detail, but just think about that. We have redemption not through doing more good than bad. Not through turning over a new leaf. Not through being different after we pray to prayer. We have redemption through the blood. Our wrongdoings are taken away and forgiven by the riches of His grace. It's not in us. We never fight accusation and condemnation by saying, but look how good I've been since then. Because that doesn't matter. We say, look at what Jesus did. Look at the cross. Look at the blood of my redemption. Your accusations are useless. We remind Him of verses like this. Although, yes, I was alienated from God. Yes, I was an enemy of God. Yes, I engaged in evil deeds. But I've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. And at this current moment, I stand before you holy and blameless and beyond reproach because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been attributed to my account. Or this one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's the standard. Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. If there, is, if there is a verse of these three you should take, it should be this one. Look at the wording. Don't sin, right? Isn't that the point of the first part? Do not sin. That's what the, this is given. Don't sin. But what happens if we do? We have an advocate. We have a defense lawyer, essentially. Who is it? It's Jesus. And what does Jesus plead on our behalf after we sin as our advocate? He doesn't plead our goodness. Well, that's just one mistake, but look at all the good they've done. He doesn't plead, well, it wasn't that big in comparison to what someone else has done. He pleads himself. He is the atoning sacrifice. He pleads his blood. And that is taken care of. Oh, dear friend, when you sin as a disciple of Jesus... Jesus doesn't turn against you at that point. He doesn't accuse you and condemn you at that point. He is your advocate at that point, pleading His blood over your life. Don't let Satan win the accusation and condemnation game in your life. Overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Overcome him by knowing the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you. Overcome Him by knowing that you are at this moment free, forever free of condemnation because of what Christ has done. Overcome Him by knowing those who have been born again and washed in the blood of Christ will never be condemned as a sinner. Ever. When Satan attacks us with accusations and condemnation, we're tempted to focus on our own unworthiness or sins. And we feel so bad. 
Or we tend to focus on all the good we've done apart from that. Both are the wrong way to respond. Because your salvation, my salvation, is never at any point based upon your goodness or mine. There is not one of us that will stand in heaven before God and give praise to ourselves for our goodness and being there. Oh Lord, thank you that I am not as other men, that I was faithful unto the end. The person who thinks that will not be there at the end. The person who stands before Jesus, free of condemnation, will stand before Him and say, Thank you for the blood. Thank you for what you have done. I am here today only by the grace of Almighty God. It's what we're trusting in. It's what we're holding to. It's where our hope lies. This is why we were saved in the beginning. This is why we are saved at this current moment. And this is why we will be saved when we stand before Jesus in heaven. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Secondly, by the word of our testimony. The word testimony here has a double meaning. First, it carries with it the idea of words. It is a confession about Jesus as the Christ. Now, in the New Testament, there are two significant confessions about Jesus, disciples of Jesus make. The first is in Matthew 16. Jesus asked His disciples, who did people say He was? Some said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, one of the other prophets. Jesus asked the probing, penetrating question, but who do you say that I am? Peter, filled with the Spirit, with revelation from God, says you are the Christ the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The rock the church is built upon is the confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And a church or a person who builds their life on the fact Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the gates of hell themselves, all the powers of hell, cannot overthrow them and overcome them. The other great confession comes in Romans 10, 9 and 10, where we're told we must, in order to be saved, we must confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. When we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, we are confessing He is who He claimed to be. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah. But when we confess Jesus is Lord, we are also saying He deserves preeminent place in our lives. Lord there doesn't mean just someone we respect. It means King. When I say Jesus is Lord, when we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying Jesus is our King. And as such, He deserves preeminent place in our lives. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the King over kings, the Lord over lords. And as such, I should live in light of that. That I will live for my life showing Jesus is Lord. And when you connect those two confessions to what we see in verse 11, notice, 
They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony. But notice how the word of their testimony is lived out. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. Now, remember, when we start getting into the next chapters, disciples of Jesus are going to start dying really, really badly. Overcoming doesn't mean no problems. Overcoming doesn't mean absolute victory with a, an easy life. As the, as the passage Connor read at the beginning of church stated, in this world we will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so the testimony is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is my Lord and I will live that out and I will love Him even when faced with death. Some translations say they love their lives. They love not their lives unto death. The ultimate test in our confession about Jesus, the word of our testimony, isn't just in the words we say. It is in the life we live. Our willingness to obey Him even when it is hard. Revelation 2 and 13 talks about Antipas, the faithful witness for Jesus. If anyone remembers how Antipas showed himself to be a faithful witness for Jesus, it was through his death. He witnessed about Jesus even when faced with death. Of course, remember, we've talked about this before. The, The most commonly used Greek word for witness in our English Bible comes from the word martyr. That's where the word Greek, the English word martyr comes from. But until the end of the second or third century, it didn't mean death. It just meant testify, witness. But what happened was so many people witnessed about Jesus and died that the Greek word took on the connotation of death. To witness for Jesus was to die for Jesus. Jesus spoke often about this. He spoke often about the time when hostility would come just because we followed Him. And what were we to do in that time? Be faithful unto death. He said we aren't to compromise our testimony about Him just because people may kill us for it. Our verbal and lifestyle testimony of Jesus is this. Since He is the Messiah, the Son of God, and He is our Lord, we will serve Him no matter what, even if this means difficulty or death. It's the testimony of someone like Esther who says they were going to do what God wanted done and says, if I die, I die. It's the testimony of three young Hebrew men who say to the king, Know this, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But if not, we will still not bow down to your idols. The Apostle Peter told us, Since Jesus suffered physical pain, 
we must arm ourselves with the same attitude and be ready to suffer as well. 1 Peter 4, 1. We cannot be victorious over the enemy if we do not have this testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan likes to use intimidation and fear to keep us from serving Jesus. In some places, it is fear of persecution and death. There are places in the world today where disciples of Jesus will be persecuted, beaten, imprisoned. Horrible things happen to them. And they will die. I, as part of my work with the Oklahoma State Mission Board for Free Will Baptist, I, I'm in, in contact with missionaries in India. One of the missionaries, one of our Oklahoma churches supports, was preaching in a church recently. And when he did, some Hindu fundamentalists came in and beat him just almost to death. And he knew that was a possibility because of where they are. They don't stop. I mean, that doesn't stop them. They, they go out anyway. But this is a, a tactic of Satan to intimidate, to fear the death, the beating, the abuse that could come. Now, in, in our part of the world, we don't see that so much. But there still could be mocking and rejection. Right? So in places like America, Satan can't amp up persecution to the point where people are persecuted unto death. Are tortured or imprisoned or, or beaten. So he uses other intimidation tactics. Fear of rejection. You'll lose your friends. What will people say? Fear of being mocked. They'll make fun of you. Fear of financial loss. You could lose your job if you stay faithful to Christ. Satan realizes if he can get humans to fear the repercussions of serving Jesus more than they fear failing Jesus, he's won. If He can get us to love our lives, whether it's our physical life or our lifestyle or our friends or our reputation or, or, or whatever. If He can get us to love those things more than we love Jesus, He's one. Right? Because He can use them against us. Well, you're going to lose your child who's living in sin if you continue to say what they're doing is sin. Oh, I better compromise and, and back off on that. Oh, you, you're going to... Lose this lifelong friend if you say, I'm going to serve Jesus. He, he, if we love any of those things more than we love Jesus, Satan will absolutely leverage them against us. And if we love them more than we love Jesus, then he will absolutely win in our life. Satan realizes if he can get humans to be only committed to serving Jesus when it's easy, he's won. Because it's always going to be hard eventually. On the other hand, if disciple of Jesus fears only God, he loses. If a disciple of Jesus loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, he loses. If a disciple of Jesus is determined to do the will of God no matter what it costs them personally, he loses. Satan is, above all else, two things. A liar and a bully. In his war on the people of God, he uses the tactics of a liar and a bully. He lies to tell us we're worthless, wretched, miserable, and hopeless. If we believe his lies, he wins. 
We fight his lies by knowing the truth about who we are because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of what Christ has done for us in salvation. It's not about saying we aren't those things. Because apart from Jesus, we surely are all of those things. It's about saying because of the blood of Jesus, those things just simply don't matter anymore. And then he is a bully. And he uses the intimidation tactics of a bully to make us fear him. To fear society, to fear the consequences like loss of friends, loss of life, loss of job, loss of finances, loss of whatever. He wants us to fear the loss of these things more than we fear God. But if you think about it, ultimately this is a love issue. Why do we fear losing something? It's because we love it. So the way we fight the bully tactic of him making us afraid is that we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we love the Lord our God in this way, we will serve our Savior no matter what. To love him this way, I mean, literally all we have to do is think about who he is and what he's done. I mean, he is... He is the great and the glorious God who who spoke the world into existence, created humans out of dirt, breathed the breath of life in them, and they rebelled. We rebelled. I mean, it's not just Adam. We rebelled. But he sent Jesus to die a, a horrible, painful, agonizing death. Not because Jesus had done anything. Not because God had to. Oh, how we have to understand. God didn't have to. He could have left us in our sins to face judgment. And that would have been a just decision of a holy God. But he chose in love to send Jesus to die and suffer. The the nails through the hands and the beating and the, the thorns. That was bad. Don't get me wrong. That wasn't the worst of what Jesus endured. Jesus endured hell on the cross. He he took the eternal punishment of hell in, in all of our places. He experienced separation from God. And then he, after paying the penalty for our sins, he died. He laid in the tomb for three days and then he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven where at this moment he is praying for us interceding for us. And if you are saved today, if we are saved today, it is because He intentionally sent His Spirit to us as people. Think about that. The God of glory initiated contact with us as individuals. He worked in His Spirit to say, come to me. Come to Jesus. And if you're like me, you didn't come the first time. Think about the audacity being from dirt in rebellion against the God of heaven. And he's saying, come to me. And I'm saying, no. No. I've got stuff I want to do. And you're not interrupting my life plans. Can you If your kid died for somebody and you wanted to bring them close and they said, no, no, I've got other things to do. I'm not. How would you feel? The God of glory kept reaching out. And he kept pulling. And he called. And finally we answered. Finally, this creature from dust 
saying that, okay, God, I guess I'll listen to what you have to say. Can the capacity of such a thing? And when we came, he saved us. We, we didn't. We didn't fix ourselves. You didn't square yourself away. You're not redeemed because of what you've done. You're redeemed because of what Christ has done. It is His blood that has made us righteous. It is His Spirit that has sanctified us. Everything we have is for His glory and what He has done. We, we cannot glory in anything. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Even as believers. And He loves us. And He calls us. And He's patient. And He's kind. And He's merciful. And He's good. How could we not love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my daughters. But can one of them save me from the wrath to come? Can't the one of them stop and change my life to the point that I am a born-again child of God. Not one of them can fix what's broken in my life and in my heart. Only God can do that. How, how could I love them more than I love Him? Surely. Surely, my brethren, these things ought not to. If we truly understood who He is and what He has done, there's just not any way not to love Him. And see, this is the key to loving Him. It's not about knuckling it under. I, I don't know about you, I can't make myself love people. I mean, I mean, there's people I know I'm supposed to love and I don't even like them. And I can't even make myself like the people. But if I begin to think about God and what He has done and who he is, what He has made me in Christ and all of these things, I'm not making myself love Him. It's just, it just wells up within me. I'm not doing anything. I'm thinking about who He is and what He's done. And as the psalm said at the verse, meditating on His glory and His wonderful works and, and this love, it, it wells up within me. He even makes that. How, how awesome. How amazing is our God? Anyway, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And not to people out there, to people in here. This church right now is filled with people Satan is seeking to steal in their lives, to kill in their lives, and to destroy in their lives. It's prowling around, looking for a moment of weakness, looking for an opening to get in, and if he finds it, he will win. And for some, he may well already be at work stealing and killing and destroying, and you're aware of it. But the only way to overcome, whether it's he's coming or he's here, is through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Our nothing else we do will bring victory. Nothing else we do will enable us to overcome. It is the word of God, or it is the blood of the Lamb, and it is the word of our testimony. Satan cannot win against a person covered in the blood of the Lamb who has the word, the testimony, 
and is going to be faithful to Jesus even in the face of death. Think of the Apostle Paul sitting in a Roman prison waiting to find out if he is going to be executed or released writing a letter saying to live as Christ to die as gain. I just don't know what I would choose if the choice was mine at the moment. To stay here is really needful for y'all. How I long to go to be with Jesus. How can the devil win against a person like that? You beat a person like that and he rejoices he's worthy to suffer for Christ. You imprison him, he witnesses to his jailers and his prison mates. You release him, he goes to the churches and he talks to them. You kill him, he goes to be with Jesus. You live, he serves Jesus. How does Satan win against someone like that? He can't. And that's the way we're to be. If we love the Lord, our God, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are covered in the blood, and by the word of our testimony, Satan cannot win. So I'm going to ask you to stand.